Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. invite you to stand for a scripture reading. I would encourage you, if you are a turn-to-it-in-your-Bible type, to do so and keep it open. There's much here as we try to digest this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, page 1221 in the Bible you have in the chair. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. I've been using a devotional lately written by Eugene Peterson called Every Day on Arrival. And I recently paused over these words from him. He wrote, The actual character of men and women emerges in confrontation with the ultimate issues. Forces that have been dormant or hidden beneath the routine surfaces of life suddenly are exposed. And not infrequently, The exposure is of ugliness and malice. Something happens in life and the dormant and hidden character we thought we had is revealed through that something. Or a dormant and hidden character we didn't realize we had is revealed through that something. And Peter says, uh, suggests frequently the exposed character is ugly and malicious. I hate to admit this, but I know exactly what he means. I'm in the middle of an experience that is revealing an ugly and malicious part of my character. It's an experience involving, on the one hand, one of my children, and on the other hand, the sport she plays. And for those of you who know me, the combination of uh, children, but more importantly, sports has a way of exposing the ugly and the malicious, and it's doing so quite well. I thought I dealt with this, but I now currently have a front row seat on an ugly chunk of character I did not realize I still had, and it took a set of circumstances to reveal this hidden and dormant character. And it's caused me to reflect, to confess what's going on to some other people, and take prayerful inventory of how Jesus might want to work uh, in this area and arena of my life. Hear Peterson's words again. This time, 
in the context of our current political climate in our nation. The actual character of men and women emerges in confrontation with the ultimate issues. Forces that have been dormant or hidden beneath the routine surfaces of life suddenly are exposed. And not infrequently, the exposure is of ugliness and malice. We are in the midst of an ethical recession in our nation. And one of the leading indicators is our collective ugliness and malice manifested in the political arena. The anger and the division displayed by our political leaders, by the general public, and most disturbingly, by the Christian community, are signs, I would suggest, of our actual character. And it's rather disturbing. Now, as you realize, a message on politics invites, among other things, trouble. It'd be a lot easier to just skip this. Move on to something simple like, oh, I don't know, sexuality. I'm kidding. But that's coming in a couple of weeks. I said when this series began, there would be times when we each would probably be offended or agitated or unsettled by my remarks on whatever the topic was. And I want you to know this about me if you don't already. I do not like at all the strategy of agitating just for the fun of it. It's not, in my mind, it is not uh, a right expression of what a pastor is supposed to do. Agitating for the sake of agitating or for the fun of it is not something I'm into. But I think a pastor's role is now and then to occasionally offer a biblical critique and creatively try to inspire a kingdom alternative to whatever is being critiqued and to do this gently and to do this with love and grace. So I will today express some of my thoughts on the current political scene from my perspective as a Christ follower and as a pastor. And you will probably disagree with some of my thoughts and some of my perspectives. And your disagreement is good. I will not today, however, prescribe specific steps to navigate the political chaos of our time or say anything remotely similar to Christians should vote this way or they should vote that way. Rather, I've arranged this message around four tensions I think we need to consider and grapple with a bit. And I hope talking through these tensions will open up space for personal and communal reflection, personal and maybe communal confession, and hopefully further conversation about these things. So here's the first tension. Kingdom citizenship and political identity. If I could pull up a chair, as we've been saying, and have a relaxed conversation with Joe or Josephine Christian, maybe over a beverage or two, about any of the topics we've been considering in this series, I personally would choose to chat with them about politics. Not about policy so much, though those certainly matter. Not about which political party is better than the other political party, though political parties are part of our deal here in America. But I would want to hear about Joe or Josephine Christian's relationship with politics. Their investment, we might say, in politics and in political solutions to cultural problems. I would want to understand Joe or Josephine's ferocity and intensity when it comes to politics. 
I would want to hear their thoughts on those who think or vote differently or have alternative ways of understanding the social issues of our time. This week, yet again, as seems to be the case every week, in this arena of politics, division is flaring yet again. So this is an extremely important topic for those of us who are Christ followers to think about. First Peter, the book, was written around 60 AD. The emperor of the, of the Roman Empire at the time was a really bad dude named Nero. When First Peter was written, Nero was increasing the pressure on followers of Jesus, killing them while enjoying his pizza. It was a time when being a Christian meant trouble and pressure and perhaps even death. In verse 11 of what we read, Peter describes his readers using these two words. He says, you are foreigners and exiles. And he says this, describes them this way, to remind them of their ultimate and first identity. And this is really important for us to think about today in light of the setting we are in. Kingdom citizens are strangers and foreigners and exiles in this world. And the vast majority of the Bible was written to those who were foreigners and exiles because of their displacement from their homeland and because of their relationship with God. So the Bible was not primarily written to the powerful ones who were running the empire. They are certainly invited into the story. But the story of the Bible is aimed at those who are on the outside. So if we are Christian, we are foreigners and exiles, according to the Apostle Peter. This is our identity as Jesus' people. Or say it this way, our primary identity is as a citizen of God's kingdom. And this isn't some benign religious slogan. Peter's just slapping on. It is actually who we are. As kingdom citizens, we are devoted first and foremost to the king. So our primary commitment is to live out the constitution of Jesus as outlined in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other biblical teachings. Now, that being said, it is good for kingdom citizens to care about our nation and actively engage in efforts to improve it. It is good for kingdom citizens to vote and discuss and debate important issues such as politics. But here's the tension. Christians from left to right across the political spectrum have lost their true identity and traded it in for a political identity. Christians, we might say, have been seduced by politics. Their faith hopped in bed with their politics, and the two have become one flesh. So there's no distinction between the two. So now, Republican or Democrat is really, if you scrape everything else away, their primary identity. So that one's politics shapes one's faith, far more than one's faith shapes one's politics. So this first tension has to do with our first love and our first loyalty. To whom do we belong? What tribe are we in? For the Christian, the answer is we are kingdom citizens before we are American citizens or Democrats or Republicans. Our loyalty 
is to Jesus. Jesus, if you prefer, is our president. The Sermon on the Mount is our constitution. Our kingdom citizenship is to shape our politics just like our kingdom citizenship is to shape every other aspect of our lives. And when our kingdom citizenship collides or contradicts our political identity, something's got to give. Second tension, kingdom goodness and political cruelty. Peter, in this passage we read and throughout his letter, is passionately teaching his readers how to live Christianly in a very difficult social and cultural situation. He says in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And in verse 17, he says to these people living in challenging cultural and social circumstances, show proper respect to everyone. So we are to live in the culture as an advertisement for God's goodness. So the culture sees God's goodness in those of us who bear his name. And part of that goodness is in Verse 3, part of that manifestation of God's shalom and goodness is in the instruction he gives in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether the emperor, remember Nero, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Verses 16 and 17. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. And then this phrase again, honor the emperor. Advertise God's goodness in the midst of the culture. Display it in how you live and in how you work and in how you interact especially with those who disagree and who are different. Love the family of believers and fear God, Peter says. And we say, well, that makes sense. But honor the emperor? Wait a minute. Remember, he's the bad guy who kills Christians when he's eating his pizza. Honor Nero? Really? He's a bully, a psychopath, a narcissist. He kills Christians. He is soulless. He's against everything we are for. We don't like him. Honor the emperor. Peter's saying, display kingdom goodness in the face of tough social and cultural circumstances and even in the face of oppression and persecution and evil. Display kingdom goodness. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing. These are the ethics of the Christ follower. Goodness and love are crucial tenets then of the kingdom constitution you and I have committed to follow. So here's the tension. Kingdom citizens are to advertise goodness and love through the way they live and work and interact and respond. But today's political theater is cruel. It is a venue of violence, name-calling, power-grabbing, 
demeaning the other and winning at any cost. And we simply have to acknowledge this. Sadly, our president leads the way in this. He's on the record saying if someone attacks him, he will retaliate ten times harder. And his opponents do the same thing back to him. The key players in Congress that we watch and read and listen to, they model this exact same thing. But most problematic of all, Christians participate in this rhetorical violence, often justifying it in the name of standing up and defending the truth. We turn human beings into others and then treat them like soulless objects. I would say the Christian community has amended the kingdom constitution by sanctifying violence. And it's just wrong. Professor David Fitch writes this, Antagonisms, chaos, hate, vitriol, and violence are all signs of the enemy at work. They are the source of his power. We must invite our enemies into reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration, and being loved. This is the way God shall heal the world. See, in our time, Christian Democrats and Christian Republicans have embraced what Fitch suggests are the weapons of the enemy to win at any cost. And it's just wrong. Think about the way we flippantly demean those with whom we politically disagree. Gun-toting right-wing bigot. Or bleeding-heart liberal. And this is what happens when political ideology is extracted from a relational context. So it's no longer face-to-face interaction at a table over a beverage or two. It is Facebook interaction. Ideas are divorced from real people who hold those ideas. And anger and violence and vitriol are inevitable, and compassion is virtually impossible. We otherize the other. And Peter's teaching that, quote, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, gets replaced with bleeding heart liberals or right-wing bigots. And the light of the Christian witness dims a bit more, and the saltiness of the Christian witness fades a bit more, and it shouldn't be this way. It grieves the Holy Spirit to see His people using the weapons of this world to dehumanize the other. Jesus did not do this with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus did not do this to the Roman soldier who came to Him and needed His help. Jesus did not do this to Pontius Pilate, even though Pontius Pilate held his very life in his hands. And Jesus did not do this to his very executioners, to whom he said, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we should not do this as kingdom citizens. We are to be an advertisement for God's goodness in the midst of the political violence and chaos and cruelty. We are to demonstrate a God-soaked alternative. Vincent Bacote wrote a book called The Political Disciple, in which he writes, The Path of Sanctification 
challenges us to see political opponents as neighbors we must love and regard as fellow human beings. And James Hunter, in a book called To Change the World, and I believe this is on your screen, in public discourse, the challenge is not to stifle robust debate, but to make sure that it is real debate. The first obligation for Christians is to listen carefully to opponents, and if they are not willing to do so, then Christians should simply be silent. To engage in a war of words is to engage in a symbolic violence that is fundamentally at odds with the gospel. Third tension, kingdom ethics and political loyalty. The kingdom of God does not work the way the kingdom of man works. It runs on a different ethic. The kingdom of God runs by a different ethic. Winning is not the goal. Jesus, the one we follow, was mistreated. He was insulted. He was belittled. He was laughed at. He suffered injustice. The church of First Peter was persecuted. Foreigners and exiles are not the power center of a culture. And yet, these foreigners and these exiles in first century Palestine and the surrounding areas were instructed to manifest the goodness of God and love their enemies and pray for their persecutors and return blessing for the cursing they had received. See, these are the social ethics Christians are to uphold, care about, work toward, live out, and defend. And these social ethics are established by the constitution of the kingdom of God outlined in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Bible. So here's the tension. Kingdom ethics sometimes contradict our political loyalties because no politic perfectly aligns with God's kingdom ethics. So an example that just sort of opens up all kinds of things related to the ethics of the kingdom is the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps you've heard of it. I'm going to read it from Luke chapter 10. And the the scenario is this very religious guy, this teacher of the law is how he's described, comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him what to do. And one of the things he says is um, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this teacher of the law says, well, who's my neighbor? Now, you know exactly what he's up to. Who can I put over here as unqualified to be my neighbor? So Jesus gives him a 101 lesson in the ethics of the kingdom. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, you bleeding heart liberal. (laughs) Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Kingdom ethics 101. We could spend a long time talking about this, but make no mistake about it. In this one single story, Jesus is confronting racism, the Jew-Samaritan tension. And he's confronting the status markers of the society. Levite, oh, you're high up the ladder. Teacher of the law, you're high up the ladder. Samaritan, you're way down on the ladder. Guy getting robbed on a street who's laying in the middle of the road, he's low on the ladder. And Jesus is confronting the religious who distance themselves from those they deem to be unworthy of their love and of their grace. The people with their religious pedigrees ignored the hurting man. And if you caught that, they actually moved to the other side of the road to keep their distance from the hurting man. But a Samaritan, and understand this, the Samaritans were the demeaned others of the Jews. So do we think Jesus is trying to make a point? The Samaritan had mercy and compassion on the hurting man. He spent his own money to help the hurting man. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Kingdom ethic. Go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. Even those you don't think deserve to be loved. See, Jesus was always turning things upside down. He frequently reached out his hand to help someone who had sinned and had the reputation of a sinner. He reached out his hand and touched the one who was forgotten by everybody else, ignored by everybody else. And he did this without any regard for whether the one he was reaching out to believed in him or believed in God or not. He healed them and touched them because he was loving and he was good. So helping the hurting is a kingdom issue and it's in the textbook on Kingdom Ethics 101. Jesus shattered racial barriers. This is just one story story demonstrating it. Go and do likewise. We're to care about and work for racial barriers. Reconciliation, because it's a kingdom ethic. Jesus cared for the poor. Go and do likewise. And we can extend his ethics, I think, to say things like this. Protect unborn children. Adopt unwanted children. Care for the elderly. Honor those who govern us. Submit to their authority. And if you decide to push against their authority, do so in a civil matter as 
citizens of the king. Love sinners. And love and care for the foreigner and for the exile. Because you are one. As Deuteronomy 10.19 says, For you yourselves were foreigners and exiles. As second, as First Peter says, I write this to you foreigners and exiles. Our identity. See, if we are a kingdom citizen, our perspective on this refugee situation at the border is not determined by President Trump. And it is not determined by Nancy Pelosi. Our perspective of what's happening at the border is to be shaped by Jesus and lived out based on what he says and what he does. So if Jesus were in our midst today, I have a hunch based on the scriptural picture of him, he would care about the people stranded at the border and do what he could to dignify and help them. And Christians, unfortunately, have politicized this issue and extracted it from the actual people and in the process forgotten the actual people. Disembodied ideology is violent toward other human beings. And I realize, believe me, there are many challenges and complexities unfolding at the border. This is not some statement to say, just fling the doors open. That's not what I'm saying. But these are people, families, children, and they matter. And when Jesus' ethic contradicts our political loyalties, we follow him. Because above all, we are a citizen of his kingdom. I came across a a statistic the other day. I'm not a statistic person. I can last about, I've clocked it, about 14 seconds when I'm looking at statistics before I just can't do it. I don't know. I don't understand them most of the time, and I get lost in them the rest of the time. But I came across a statistic the other day from Pew Research, pretty reputable research firm. They conduct research on the religious practices and perceptions in today's culture. And they found that 65% of those who claim, and this is their phrase, no religious affiliation, believe the United States has a responsibility to care for those who are displaced by violence or by war. 65%. Here's the troubling thing. The same survey found that only 25% of white evangelical Christians believe The U.S. has a responsibility to care for those displaced by violence or war. Now, say what you want. I'm not going to politicize this because I actually think that our responsibility goes way beyond the political power center's responsibility. Say what you want, but that is a troubling little stat. Live such good lives among the pagans so they may see your good deeds. According to Pew Research, non-Christians are more than twice as likely as Christians to uphold what, to me, seems like a biblical ethic that goes something like this. Love and care for the foreigner and for the exile because you are one. And I don't imagine Jesus would listen to all of our rationalizations and nod his head and say, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. 
Don't worry about those people. They're not your responsibility. I think we need to think about this. And creatively imagine ways to help as followers of Jesus. Last tension, number four, kingdom witness and political idolatry. I understand politics is messy because at some point we pull the lever on a candidate who is not the whole package and neither are we the whole package. And no politic and no candidate fully incarnates kingdom ethics, but we vote and we should. So let me say this. Politics cannot do what we are asking it to do today. It wasn't designed to do what we're asking it to do. Politics is not the way the kingdom of God is displayed on earth. And according to what Jesus says and what we're going to talk about in a second, our concern is to display the kingdom of God on earth. Winning a culture war is not how the kingdom of God is displayed on earth. Because as we've seen, in order to win a culture war... Lots of things have to be engaged in and done that are anything but Christian. The church is actually the way the kingdom of God is displayed. The church then, we are to be an example of the alternative vision God has for this world. Politics is how we try to coerce the culture to be the way we want it. But we as the church, you And I and us together are called to advertise the kingdom and how we relate to these things and to each other. Scott McKnight, one of my favorites, in a book called Kingdom Conspiracy, this is on the screen because it's a million words long and it'll put you to sleep, so I'd encourage you to follow it. He says this, Christians have failed to embody the church as an alternative politic and have instead opted for influencing and improving Caesar or transforming culture or using the political process to accomplish their wishes. Many, many fall for the belief that the next candidate or vote can bring kingdom conditions. Some give themselves to politics and an increasing number have joined hands with the political process through social activism. To be blunt, many have abandoned the church and opted for the political process and are now calling it kingdom work. In one simple sentence, what Christians want for the nation should first be a witnessed reality in their local church. Until that local church embodies that desire for the nation, the church's witness has no credibility. Too many Christians have ignored the politic of the local church and bowed down to the politics of the world. Politics is a colossal distraction from kingdom mission. Politics entails the weakening of our kingdom message. Politics entails energies and time that could be used more directly for kingdom mission tasks. Politics means seeking to influence the state in the direction of the kingdom. But in doing so, it is asking the public and the state to put into law and policy the kingdom story. Politics sees victory when a candidate wins or when a law passes or a policy is reformed. I speak directly now. We kingdom people don't need the state. We don't need the majority. And we must refrain from equating victory in the world with kingdom mission. He's saying the starting point for living out a kingdom ethic is with the family of believers, as Peter puts it. This is taking the ethics of the Bible, some of which we just talked about, and the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, and living them out 
in our congregation. He's saying Christians have been duped by politics. It's become one of our idols. Our witness, however, begins by living out the kingdom ethic right here together. So a Republican sits face to face with a Democrat over a beverage or two with ears to hear what Jesus is saying to them through the other person instead of walking on the other side of the road in avoidance. We practice racial reconciliation right here in the actual relationships with the actual people in our congregation. The cultural learning group, some of you are familiar with, presses into these things. But racial richness at Oak Hills Church is essential. And it is crucially important because it sets the stage to show the culture how different races can relate in the love and goodness of God. We learn and we care for the poor among us. So the poor and the distraught and the forgotten and the marginalized are absolutely essential to a healthy Oak Hills church. Not as projects to fix, but as people who deepen us and strengthen our church family. When a marriage in our church is struggling... The friends of those who are struggling come alongside the couple and get into the mess instead of walking down the other side of the road to avoid the mess. When someone in our church really dislikes President Trump and what he stands for, and they really disagree with him, and their dislike and disagreement is starting to really sound like hate, that Christ follower sits with a brother or sister in Christ who voted for President Trump. And they process together. Not to convince. Not to coerce. But to listen and learn. And perhaps lovingly challenge. And lovingly debate. And graciously disagree. When someone in our congregation loses their job, that becomes our concern as a faith community. And those who have means willingly sacrifice their resources for those who are in a season of struggle. When someone here at Oak Hills is confused about their sexual identity or their gender identity, we don't rush to the other side of the road and walk on by shaking our head. We don't violently label. We come alongside. We love. We care. We journey with. And we discern God's perspective on sexuality together in a grace-filled and loving community. And you know something? I think we at Oak Hills are really learning how to do these things. I think we're really beginning to stretch beyond our comfort zones and learn how to do this. And this is when the light of our witness gets brighter And the salt of our witness gets tastier. And obviously this gets messy and hard and complicated really quickly. It's an imperfect process. But it's our calling as a church to model Jesus' way to a culture increasingly divided. And one thing is eminently certain. Politics is not the answer. We as the church need to step boldly into the division and demonstrate the shalom of Jesus 
But to do so, we have to be humble. We have to be open to the Spirit in our own lives. We have to grow in compassion. Be willing to risk. Really, we have to be willing to do some deep thinking about our own attachments to politics, the ferocity with which we hold our view, the intensity with which we hold our view. We're going to have to potentially confess some things, face our own anger, face the fear behind our anger. And we may need Jesus' help, I suspect we will, to do these things. So we want to take some time to respond, not just to what today's been about, but so far as we've dug up some pretty significant things, to take some time to respond to whatever the Spirit might be doing in you today or any time through this series. And we're going to definitely just spend some time worshiping God together. He is good. He knows the situation we're all in. He's graciously in charge, even though sometimes it does not appear so. So we will have a time of worship and reflection. But also this is a time for you to perhaps move about the room. Um, There are rocks in the back at the tables there. There are rocks up front here at each of the stations by the cross. There are Sharpies at all of these stations. And we want to continue to emphasize the way in which we throw rocks at the one we otherize. The ways in which we've berated, demeaned, the anger we carry around some of these subjects, around politics, the hatred we may have toward others. So any time during this time of response, whether it be while Jordan's singing or while we are worshiping together, my encouragement to you is to be attentive to what the Spirit may be up to in you, And if he so compels, get up out of your seat and respond in some way with a rock, by writing on a rock, by laying the rock at the cross, by spending time at the cross. Or it's even possible that as you think about this, there may be people in this room. You've had this kind of division and separation. This could be a time to go to them as brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. We worship you, our King. We thank you for your word. We have no illusions that everything said today is right. Exactly. But we do have a sense that you shocked the world by your alternative way. And we desire to find that way, both individually and as a church, and continue to live in that way. So by your spirit, help us to do so. And in these moments we have together, through whatever means you choose, we ask you to stir in us that your spirit would fall upon us in a fresh way and do deep work in our inner being. And we pray in Christ's name.